Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you're here to join us in a study of God's Word. Well, good morning, everyone. Today we continue our sermon series in the book of Philippians. And as we saw last week, those who have been called are called to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. We talked about the fact that this is both a corporate and an individual call. Excuse me. The church as a whole should be working out their salvation. But the church as a whole cannot gain any ground if no one is individually willing to pick up their feet and start moving forward. We recalled how precious this gift of salvation is and looked at the attitude of fear and trembling that we were to put on as we worked it out. We reflected on the reality that the only reason we have this thing called salvation is because God has already worked it in. He provides both the ability and the desire to do so. And we saw the outcome, what the outcome will be, when we faithfully obey this command. Both our willing and our working can be done for God's good pleasure. Sinful beings like me and you can stop living for ourselves and start living for the Lord. And these are amazing realities that hopefully each one of us can see at work in our lives. Through God's grace, we're afforded privileges, opportunities, and blessings That otherwise we could never experience. And it would stand to reason that if we fully understood and appreciated all that God has given to us, then we would be the most joyful, most content, and most appreciative people in all of the world. This response is one that would make sense because we know that much is required when much has been received, and we'll never receive anything greater than a ransom that moved us from eternal death to eternal life. If we really understood the bondage and slavery that God freed us from, then the only thing that should be on our lips is gratefulness and praise. This is what makes sense, friends, and it would be marvelous if this was our only response. But if we're honest with ourselves and examine our hearts and minds, we quickly come to realize that far too often this is not so. And it's in this vein that the Apostle Paul continues his instruction to the Philippians to work out their salvation. Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Once again, Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, Children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. And Paul shifts his instruction from those, from how those of the faith should be working out their salvation, and now he instructs them on how they should not be working out their salvation. And in this morning's text, we'll be examining Paul's warning, the outcome of heeding that warning, and what we are to do in order to live this out. 
And as we've seen up to this point in the book of Philippians, Paul's desire for the church in Philippi is that they would continue on in unity and joyful service to the Lord. He provides himself and other church leaders as examples to follow, and he provides the ultimate example, Jesus Christ. And immediately after, he reminds the Philippians of Jesus' attitude, one of humility, obedience, and sacrifice. Paul moves right into personal instruction and practical outworkings. And his transition into verse 12 clues us into this with the words, So then. Because all of this is true of Christ, the author, forerunner, and pioneer of your faith, so then do this, this, and this, but also make sure that you don't do this. And last week we examined how we are to act, and now in verse 14 we see how we are not to act. Verse 14 reads, Do all things without grumbling and disputing. And as we study through this section of Philippians, it's important to note that there's nothing to indicate that this instruction has been given to the church in Philippi because they're guilty of a wholesale swing over to grumbling and disputing. On the contrary, in the opening lines of this letter, Paul commends the church in Philippi for their walk thus far and says that his every prayer for them is marked with joy. And just last week, we saw that he commends them for their obedience We get the sense that this church in Philippi may be heading towards disunity because of Paul's frequent reminders to unity, and also from the fact that he calls out two women by name in chapter 4 and tells them to live in harmony in the Lord. We can sense these things, but there's nothing to indicate that his instruction here is a direct admonishment because the Philippians were in sin. No, rather he offers this instruction to them as a guiding hand, telling them to make sure that they don't head in that direction. What he's saying is, make sure you don't go down that path because it's a slippery slope. It will harm the testimony of the church, and it spits on the hand of our gracious God. What we see here is not an admonishment from Paul. No, in essence, what he's saying is, hey, Philippians, here's the deal. Because you have a Savior who demonstrated such perfect obedience, you too are to obey. Because you have a heavenly Father who worked in your salvation, you too are to go about working it out. Because you are the recipients of a gracious gift that you didn't earn or deserve, you should be the poster children of grace and joy in this world. And this response makes all the sense in the world if one truly grasps and remembers who they were and where they were headed before Christ intervened in their lives. But far too often... We forget. We forget about the sins that we were enslaved to and couldn't shake. We forget about the pain, consequences, and guilt that we felt because of that sin. We forget what it felt like to carry that weight on our shoulders. And we recall to, we fail to recall often enough how marvelous it was to have it lifted off of us. We forget that we were blindly walking down to the road to to destruction. And worst off, we forget that the wages of our sin should have been eternal death. That should have been all of our fates if God had not intervened in our lives. In church, we need to get back there more often than we most likely do. We need to remember that it should have been our heads in the noose. We deserve to feel the blade pressing down on our necks. I'm the one who should have the nails pounded into my flesh. My sin should have earned me that fate. 
your sin should have earned you that fate. We deserve, because of our sin, to have God's wrath poured out upon us. But thanks be to God that he caused the iniquity of us all, all who are redeemed, to fall upon Christ. It's an amazing work that Christ did, but we must remember it. We must run back to it and allow it to continually drive us closer and closer to him. And friends, if we properly appreciated and remembered what God has given to us, then there would be no need for Paul's instruction that we see in verse 14. But sadly, we fail to properly appreciate and remember all that Christ has done. We fail, and Scripture is full of examples of individuals, nations, and generations that have done the same. Take another look with me at Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Do all things without grumbling and disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We want to make sure that individually and corporately we're a people who are doing all things without grumbling and disputing, because this is an accurate portrayal of our new identities, the children of God. And as his children, we should be shining like bright lights in this darkened world. We should be living in a way that we are above reproach, even in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. But we need to be careful that we don't adopt a behavior or a pattern of grumbling and disputing, or we may become guilty of turning into the next crooked and perverse generation. We may become guilty of committing the same sins that plague the Israelites after their exodus from Egypt. And Paul's wording here is intended to call to mind that specific example of how not to act. The phrase grumbling and disputing, coupled with the phrase a crooked and perverse generation, is meant to draw us back and think over the sins of the wilderness generation. In this generation, after being enslaved in a foreign land for hundreds of years, God rescued this people that he chose for himself with a dramatic display of power unlike the world had ever seen. Miracle after miracle, plague after plague, provision after provision, God's showing the Israelites and the rest of the world who he is and how he operates. And we know this story well. Pharaoh's hardened heart would not let God's people go until the final plague when the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. This generation of Israelites saw all of these things. They saw that God spared them this same judgment because they had applied the blood of the Passover lamb to their doorposts. They saw God parting the Red Sea, God's provision of manna and quail to satisfy their hunger, and his supplying of water for their thirst. They saw his hand of protection and deliverance over their enemies, and they saw his presence in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They saw firsthand the Lord's salvation. And how did they respond? With thankfulness and joy? Sadly, no. They responded with grumbling and dissension. Exodus fifteen twenty four. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? Exodus sixteen two through 3. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness 
The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the, this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Numbers fourteen one through 4 says this, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader to return to Egypt. And finally, Numbers 16.41. But on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. As we can see from Scripture, this generation complained when they were hungry, when they were thirsty, they complained about their adversaries, and they complained about being judged for their sin. Their grumblings were audibly voiced towards Moses and Aaron, but they were reminded by Moses who their grumblings were actually against. Exodus 16.8, we see Moses saying, for the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. And while we'll never be able to view this fully from the Lord's perspective, even a small glimpse from that angle reveals how sad and how frustrating that people's response must have been. God had just saved them from slavery in Egypt and gave them a front row seat to his power love, and his provision. He was marching them towards the land of blessing where they could settle in towns that they did not build, where they could eat from crops they did not grow, and enjoy wine from vineyards that they did not tend. All because of his choosing and his grace. And rather than receiving thanks, he was given grumblings and dissension. And we know how this story ends. That generation didn't get into the promised land, but instead they wandered in the desert for 40 years until they all died. Moses says this about this generation at the end of his life. They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. And what a sad testimony to be known by. After having experienced a salvation such as that, how could they have spurned God in such a disgraceful manner? How could they have done nothing but complain? And it's easy for us to see and judge this people as we sit here thousands of miles and years removed from their circumstances. It's easy to see their flaws when we have a nation's history and downfalls recorded for us in just a few chapters. And as so often the case, it's far too easy to see the failings of others and completely miss it in our own lives. So rather than just blindly pointing our fingers at them, maybe each of us, myself included, should step in front of a mirror and examine the person to which that outstretched finger is pointing. Because if we are to be critical of their grumblings after being saved from slavery by the Egyptians, how much more critical should we be of our own grumblings after being saved from slavery to sin. As we saw in Exodus, we know that ultimately, 
All these complaints are directed back at the Lord, even if they're voiced to a human leader or are in our own head. They're directed at the Lord. When we complain about the Lord's timing, the Lord's provision, his discipline, or having to suffer for his sake, remember the example of this wilderness generation and see how easy it is to see the sinful ad- their sinful attitude towards God. And realize that if and when we are guilty of the same, we must repent. We need to repent and then remember. Remember all that Christ did to bring about this great salvation. Remember that we are to have the same humble mindset in ourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And remember who you were and where you were headed before God intervened in your life. And Paul is urging the Philippian church to do all these things without grumbling and disputing because he doesn't want them to fall prey to the same defect that was in the wilderness generation. And he counsels them to battle against this mindset because he wants them to live up to what they have already been declared to be. Take another look at verses 14 through 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. As we saw last week, those who are in Christ are called to work out their salvation, to live out their lives, to do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God. We don't fight against complaining and dissensions because that will somehow earn us favor with God. We fight against them because God has already granted us favor, adopted us into his family, and energized us for the task at hand. We work out our salvation his way. We fight against sin with all that we have, and we let his spirit go about his work of sanctification And we do this so that we may become what he desires for us to be, blameless and innocent. And don't get me wrong, while we're here on this earth, none of us will ever attain to perfection and sinlessness. But through Christ's indwelling power within us, our aim should be at that mark. Not so that we can impress our neighbors with our good deeds and behavior and receive praise from men, but rather so that our very lives can glorify the Lord. And we must be on guard against grumbling and dispute because our thoughts, actions, words, and our very lives are no longer merely a reflection upon us or our earthly fathers, for we have been adopted into a new family, and thus how we live our lives now reflects back to that family as well. As Paul reminds the Philippians, because of Christ's work in them, they are now the children of God, and their citizenship is in heaven, and thus they should act accordingly. As we know, the desire of a good son should be to make his father proud, regardless of what circumstances he has been placed into. And likewise, as sons and daughters of God, this should be our desire as well, that we would behave in a manner befitting of our new identities and be found above reproach even in this sinful world. In church, we need to know that this is the setting that God has called us to work out our salvation in, in this sinful world. 
God doesn't save us and then place us in a bubble and lock us in a room with other bubble people. He calls us to live for him and to serve him in this dark place that we call home. And if we're doing things his way, our goal should not be to blend in with the culture, community, or in many cases, even our families. When we're doing things his way, we should stick out. Or, as Paul puts it, we are to shine out. Philippians 2.15 reads, We're to do all things without grumbling and disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you will appear as lights in the world. We see from the text that we are called to appear, to shine as lights in this world. And this illustration of light versus darkness is one that's used all throughout Scripture. It's a very simple yet powerful word picture, for it offers the starkest contrast that can be seen by the naked eye. And for many of us, it's hard to fully understand and grasp this idea of darkness because of the time we live in when artificial light is all around us and so readily available and used. Even in rural areas, we often see the glow of the next town over and we're never left in a place of total darkness. And if you're anything like me, the times you found yourself in such a place, you remember them. I remember the first time when I came across, well, not the first time, but one of the times I came across this situation was when I had the privilege of traveling to Liberia with a team from this church. Towards the end of the trip, the lead pastor in the church in Ganta, Pastor Eleazar, had arranged for us to go out into the bush, as he called it, and view and visit some remote churches. And the one that was farthest off from where we set off was in a small village called Compli. Uh, we got to visit with the people, have a service, um, and then after that, it was off to bed. Um, all of us slept in a room attached to the church, and when the generator power was switched off, it was dark. Um, like There was no light. I remember sitting there waving my hand in front of my face, trying to see it, but there was absolutely nothing there. There was no waiting for your eyes to adjust to the faintest of light sources because there was no light to be seen, only blackness. And as we examine this morning's text, we must come to realize that this is the same type of spiritual darkness that our world knows. By itself, it offers no other source of light, and those living in it don't even realize that they're in the darkness. As the opening words of the Gospel of John says, In him, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And this is how our Savior appeared to the world, as a light shining in the darkness. And while we'll never be capable of burning as bright as he did, we're still called to shine out as lights in this dark world. As commentator David Garland points out, Paul portrays the Philippian Christians as fulfilling Israel's promised role of being a light to the nations and the eschatological future that Daniel envisions. Isaiah 61 through 3 speaks of Israel's promised role of being a light to the nations. Isaiah 61 through 3 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you 
and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And Daniel 12.3 speaks to the eschatological future that Daniel envisions for Israel. It says, Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteous like the stars forever and ever. And this is who we are called to be. But we cannot live up to this if we are a people or if we are a church who is characterized by grumbling and disputing. Because to do so disturbs our new framework, it downplays our new family, and it diminishes our flame. All of which I hope and pray are things that we have no desire to do. And as Paul penned this letter to his brothers and sisters in Philippi, he praises them for being a church that has always obeyed. And he presses them to keep on obeying. He reminds them to look back and focus on the example of Christ. And he also reminds them that as they move forward, they must continue holding fast the word of life. Take another look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 16 with me. It says, Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. As we've seen so far in this text, God's called us to appear, to shine as lights in this dark world. But how are we to continually shine forth without our light fading? How are we to burn as his lamps perpetually without running out of fuel? Paul gives us the answer right here. We're to hold fast the word of life. We saw last week that we're called to work out our salvation. We must work at it. We must realize it in practice. We must mold it into fitness. From our end, we're working and striving. Yet, all the while, from God's end, he's providing us with the strength, ability, and desire to do so. He supplies us with the energy so we can work out our salvation. But how is it that we can practically plug into this power source? Where must we turn to find God? Where must we turn to experience God? As we know, we must turn to his word. We must read, study, memorize, and meditate on God's word. This is how we feel ourselves up to live for Christ. And all those who have tasted and drank from God's word can indeed agree with Paul that it is the word of life. And we can also rejoice with the psalmist, knowing that God's word revives the soul. Psalm 119, 105 through 112 says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet, And a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. O accept the free will offering of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I have inherited your testimonies forever. They are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. We must heed the Apostle Paul's instruction and embrace God's word. And this is a command that we see in verse 16 of this morning's text. But if we examine the meaning of the verb that Paul used here, we can also see that we are never meant to grab onto this 
and only hoard it for ourselves. The, vol- the verb that Paul used here in verse 16 to describe how we are to grasp onto God's word is the Greek word epeko. And as we have already discussed, it carries with it the idea of holding it fast, but it also contains the idea of holding it forth. As Matthew Henry puts it, it's our duty not only to hold fast, but to hold forth the word of life. Not only to hold it fast for our benefit, but to hold it forth for the benefit of others. To hold it forth as the candlestick holds forth the candle, which makes it appear as an advantage to all those who are around, or as the luminaries of the heavens, which shed their influences far and wide. We are to hide God's word in our heart in the sense that it's safe and secure, and no one can ever take it from us. But this does not mean that we are to cover over our light so that the world may never see it. As Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. See, the Apostle Paul knows that the only way the Philippian church, the only way that any church can be an effective witness for Christ is by holding forth the word of life. And he also knows that if any of us are to make it to the finish line, we must hold fast the word of life. We must pay close attention to it. We must lay a hold of it and grasp onto it with all that we have. For how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word, O Lord. And how can we be a people, a church, who are not characterized by grumbling or disputing, but rather by being blameless and innocent children of God, shining forth as lights into this dark world? We do so by holding fast the word of life. While the world around us is entrenched in darkness and only knows words which lead to death, we have the opportunity only because of Christ to step out of that darkness into his light and cling to the word which brings life. Paul implores his friends in Philippi to do so for their own sake and for his own. For he knows that for them, it's the only way that they'll make it to the end. And for himself, he wants to have reason to glory, to be proud, to boast over the Philippians in the day of Christ. And he knows that the only way that he can do so, and that all of his running and toiling won't be in vain, is if they hold fast the word of life. And the same is true for us, friends. God's called us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He's provided the example, the instructions, the means, and the desire to do so. He desires for for us to work out what he has already worked in. So step into the light of Christ while holding fast the word of life, and then through his power, shine in this dark world while holding forth the word, God's word, the word of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and just thank you 
once again for your word, Lord. Uh, Thank you that we can read it and study it and be challenged by it. And this morning as we uh, go away from this place, I just pray that we would all just think back and remember uh, who we were um, before you reached into our lives, uh, convicted us and draw us to yourself. Uh, We remember and just see the difference and the different direction you pointed us in and how far we've hopefully traveled away from sin and closer to you. And we remember that none of this was done under our own power uh, because only of your sending and only because of your Son in our lives, Lord, and the work of your Holy Spirit, that we remember these things. And then when hard times come, Lord, uh, when we hit dry seasons in life, we wouldn't complain, we wouldn't grumble against you, but we'd give you the all the praise uh, and the honor that you're due. We would cling to you, Lord. We would draw closer into your word and that you would just empower us to be what you've already declared us to be, blameless and innocent children of God. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose, come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue.